I'm Peter Holliday, and this is The Land Behind, a podcast devoted to exploring the relationship between photography, perception, and place. In this episode, I'm delighted to speak with the London-based documentary photographer Alice Tomlinson. Motivated by anthropological considerations, such as the relationship between faith, identity, and place, in 2018, Alice was the winner of the Sony World Photography Awards, and in 2020, she was awarded first place in the Taylor Wessing Photographic Portrait Prize. Having just released her new photo book, Glee Isolani, inspired by cultural events and traditions specific to the Mediterranean islands of Sicily and Sardinia, I also ask Alice about her upcoming documentary film, Vera, based on the hidden life of the Orthodox nun, after which the production assumes its working title. In referencing my last conversation with the British anthropologist Tim Ingold, we also consider the striking parallels between photography and anthropology, and consider the ways in which the documentary image can represent the concerns and conditions that make us who we are as human beings, with the dignity and openness our subject matter deserves. So, without further ado, my conversation with Alice Tomlinson now begins. So, Alice Tomlinson, thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to speak to me. Thank you for having me. Uh, you seem to have a lot of exciting projects on the go at the moment. I've read that you're getting ready to release your upcoming film titled Vera. And earlier this year, you published a beautiful new photo book named Glee Isolani. Yes. I'm really looking forward to discussing both projects with you during our conversation. But first of all, I'd like to know a bit more about the interests and motivations that lie behind your artistic process. As a documentary photographer, you're best known for your long-term bodies of work exposed using a large format camera and you studied photography as I believe at the cent- at Central St Martins in London and you also have a master's degree in anthropology from the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London and as if by coincidence in my last episode I spoke to the British anthropologist Tim Ingold mm-hmm. about his research into the nature of landscape perception And not only has Tim's research been a point of reference in my own thinking as an environmentally based photographer, as I believe it's also been important for you, but Mm -hmm. since that conversation, I've become increasingly aware of the many parallels that exist between the photographic tradition and contemporary methods of uh, anthropological inquiry. For example, Tim is an advocate of the open-ended commitment that anthropological research involves and... I'm sure you'd agree that that's an attitude which reflects the level of dedication and attention that long-term photography projects also require. So from your perspective as a British documentary photographer, what is it which drives your curiosity and the possibilities of the human condition? Mm -hmm. And how did your upbringing influence your interest in what it means to be human? Wow, that's quite a big question, isn't it? Um, Yeah, I I mean, I really, I'm looking forward to listening to your recording with with Tim because as I've mentioned before I've actually referenced him quite a lot in in many of my uh essays I had to had to come up with when I was studying at SOAS so certainly the crossover between anthropology anthropological anthropology rather and photography um can be very strong in my practice and in other photographers practice and I think we don't always really realize that necessarily at the time but the reason I studied anthropology was because I really wanted to enrich my way of thinking and I've reached this kind of turning point in my career which we can perhaps talk about later um but in terms of 
yes, the kind of human condition. I, I guess what it's kind of taught me studying anthropology, and of course, I don't, I'm, I'm not an expert like Tim is, and I don't um, pertain to be an expert at all. What I do is try and use anthropology really as a kind of framework for bettering my understanding of who we all are and what it means to be human and really understanding the worlds that I document. So through my research and essay writing and the many seminars I attended at SOAS, I suppose my overall kind of conclusion in terms of how I create my long-term projects and my images is that there's a real commonality of experience amongst us all. So we're in, we're in many ways more alike than, you know, not. So we're more alike than we are apart. And I think this idea of shared experience and commonality and through that community plays quite heavily into various themes of my, my long-term projects. So that's been very influential to my way of thinking about approaching new projects and then the actual practice of making the work. But in terms of my upbringing, um, I can't remember your exact question, but in terms of how it's influenced me, I mean, I come from, I mean, my parents separated when I was about 11, but I was brought up in Brighton in what I would consider to be a culturally rich, but financially not very well off family with one younger sister who was the kind of mega brain of the family. And I was always um, the kind of slightly more sporty, less academic one, I suppose, who was always out to kind of discovered clubbing at a fairly young age and music and vinyl and all that kind of stuff. But certainly what I do owe to my parents for sure is that they brought me up to be, I hope, a very kind of fair person and a kind person, but also someone who is very curious about the world. And this way of looking has really stayed with me. So even when I was much younger and before I got into photography and using the camera as a visual tool, I was very observant even as a young child, apparently mum said I was a bit odd at, <laughs> odd at times because I just kind of sit and watch people and watch interactions between, you know, the society that kind of surrounded us. And this to me was very fascinating from a young age. And I think it took me a while to find out how I could really communicate my way of looking at the world through a kind of tool, if you like, because I wasn't, I was never very kind of arty at school. I didn't wasn't like some amazing painter or sculptor or artist or anything. And, you know, I struggle to call myself an artist now. But this sense of looking and being just interested and being open to the world, which I later, you know, realised was this kind of phrase that Heidegger uses, which I used a lot for my anthropology, this sense of being in the world, was something that I think I've been very aware of from a young age. So I think my background... It didn't kind of make me a photographer, but it taught me to be open. It taught me to look and it taught me to think. And they're, you know, they're very simple kind of characteristics in many ways. Um, but I think they're traits that I employ and kind of lean on when I'm making my work. They're very important to me. This sense of always wanting to find out more. And I do document people and places and cultures that are not always familiar to me and definitely my study in anthropology has given me a kind of framework ethically and morally as well that is very important um, that I kind of use when I'm 
making work. And it's not a framework. It's not a kind of tick off the list type thing, but it's just a way of thinking. So because of that, I always, you know, attempt to be extremely respectful of the people and places I visit, very sensitive around them to present them in this very kind of dignified way, I suppose. And that's really important to me, particularly when I'm, yeah, when I'm documenting landscapes and people um, who are unfamiliar to me or where we don't necessarily share a common ground, like when I spent many months and years, in fact, at pilgrimage sites. So it's in some ways it's quite hard to say anthropology has resulted in this, this and this and changed the way I work in a very concrete way. But it's more about it's changed the way I think and it's changed the way I think about the world and the way I think about us as as humans and how we operate and how we interact, but also the kind of minute detail of our lives and how there is way more overlap than we often think there is. Yeah, and with with the drawing this sense of curiosity and openness and this uh, all the ethical considerations. How do you think photography can shed light on the social proce- processes and conditions which constitute the essence of being human? Wow, these are all quite big, heavy questions, aren't they? Um, no, it's really important. I mean, I don't. I'm you know, I'm a photographer. I don't think I'm going to change the world. I know I'm not going to change the world, but I hope that through my work, people can learned something about perhaps other people and cultures that they were not familiar with before. And certainly in terms of the social processes, my work tends to focus more on these often shared kind of gestures and rituals and traditions. And that's something that I very much um, focused on in Ex Voto, which was my big project about Christian pilgrimage, and more recently, like you mentioned early, earlier, in Lisolani, which is the Islanders in Italian, which is my more recent body of work, which looks at costumes and, and masks and um, traditions, mostly in small rural villages in Sicily and Sardinia. So I think also through my work, what I'm trying to say, and it's sometimes so hard to even figure out what you're trying to say, with photography I think it often takes me a long time with a project to find my way into someone else's world and to really figure out how I'm feeling at that particular moment as well because I think this idea of us all being these kind of sentient beings who are open to the world plays quite kind of heavily on my mind when I'm making my work but there is also this very strong connection to the landscape around us and that's of course where anthropologists like um, Tim Mingold come in and more contemporary writers and anthropologists and then much older kind of philosophers and and phenomenologists as well. So this sense of us really connecting with the landscape, but us also being very much entwined in what's around us in terms of the body and place being kind of entwined and embedded in who we are. So I think that's also something that's quite key to the way I think now when I make my work. And that certainly came came about or was highlighted more fully through my research and study of anthropology. And actually the the MA I did was actually the Anthropology of Travel, Tourism and Pilgrimage. So it was a very specific MA in terms of the main reason I did it was because it was the only MA I believe that existed. I think it's the only one that exists um, where the focus 
focuses on pilgrimage and I just started my project in I started going to Lourdes not really knowing quite what direction that project was going to take and that was before it turned into the body of work ex voto um but I think, yeah, I mean, and through that, of course, then comes an understanding of the self, which we can't ignore, and which I found a kind of interesting facet of the whole photographic experience, particularly when I was in Lourdes, which was not anywhere I'd ever really had any interest in visiting before, had certainly never been taken there as a child, so my family were very atheists, really, so... Um, I might have been dragged around a few churches on holidays, but certainly going to a pilgrimage site was not something that we did as a family. And therefore, they were fairly puzzled when I kind of announced that this was going to be my new project. But this sense of the kind of lived experience of the body and this sense of discovery, whether that's of the landscape around you or about the self, is something that I... I'm always trying to further, I guess, through my through my work and through my research, because the research is a huge part of any project that I take on. So what did your reading of Heidegger teach oh, you about the relationship <laughs> between self and world? You keep and I, and I, in one in one of our previous emails, you also suggested that Mer, Maurice Merleau Ponty had been a an influence as well. Yeah. And I'm just wondering what you what you got from got from their their writing. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I'd have to kind of dig out my old essays, really, to give you a particularly um, intelligent answer to that, I think. But um, it was so, it was quite a few years ago now that I did my MA. But again, I think it's just what I kind of already alluded to, which is this sense of engagement in the world. So, I mean, it's very simple things. Like when I was um, doing my MA, I wrote a an essay about... Um, the Walthamstow reservoirs that are some kind of big reservoirs in the north of northeast of London and how it represents this kind of space and place and identity. But through that, I did a lot of um, kind of walking and thinking and making very, very detailed notes just of what I saw around me. And I also did that when I was at Lourdes before I really found a way through the photographic side of my project, I was I did my dissertation actually about bodily experience in Lourdes. Um, and certainly this sense of, yeah, engaging with the world, but in a very physical way, in a sensory way, in a tactile way. And it just, I mean, it's very obvious it seems, but you know, when we walk through a landscape, we're not just putting one foot in front of the other and, you know, making a mark. We are making a mark on the landscape in a way, but also that's something that will stay with us, that sense of being alive and that sense of, of lived experience. And with, yeah, with the Merleau-Ponty, I was most interested in this sense of being open to the world as we're also kind of embedded into it. So how this all shapes kind of who we are and also, and also the way we think really. Um, so yeah, I don't, pertain to be an expert on anthropology but there were certain and some of the stuff I read I have to admit completely you know went over my head and I didn't understand it at all but there were certain phrases or ways of thinking and lines from a few kind of philosophers and anthropologists and phenomenologists that kind of stayed with me and certainly this idea of Heidegger's being in the world which is really collapsing also a lot of kind of traditional anthropological dualities that that separate us, like the mind, body and subject, object. And instead, we're thinking about 
how the world shapes us through an understanding of where we fit into that world, but also how we are who we are through the lived experience of the body. I guess that was what I was most interested in. And and strangely enough, it didn't always come through direct, well, not strangely, it didn't come through necessarily directly in my photography. So when I first started going to Lourdes, um, before the project became ex voto, and I was actually shooting the project in a very different way at that point, I was shooting it in color, um, still film, but it was in color on a medium format camera. And because I was kind of illustrating what I was writing in my dissertation, I was, it was more, much more of a traditional documentary approach. So I was photographing people, for instance, um, touching the rock at the grotto, because the grotto is the kind of main focal point of Lourdes where, you know, Bernadette, the young peasant girl, had her apparition. So that's where people flock. And it is very moving to see often people going through and touching the grotto. And I was also interested in, this idea of people bathing in the holy water, which would go kind of behind these kind of Victorian curtains. So it was much more, it was a much more literal observation. Um, and I photographed, yes, I photographed what people were doing as opposed to what they were thinking, I suppose. And the project really shifted. Although I had this great interest in the kind of bodily experience in Lourdes, I couldn't find a way to photograph that that was original to me or that was different or that really communicated what I was experiencing when I was there. And that was when the project shifted and became ex voto when I actually kind of changed my approach. And actually, I think partly through my anthropological studies, I began, I began to really think about how I felt when I was in those sacred spaces and how I could communicate how I felt when I was there through my photography instead of just documenting what I saw it became more about my experience my lived experience being in these spaces and how yeah and, and how I was able to kind of communicate some of that visually so the grotto at Lord, that was the starting point for ex voto um, the starting point, no, the starting point was actually seeing a film called Lourdes by this great director called Jessica Hausner, a female, I think she's Austrian, which is actually not a documentary, although I believe a very good documentary has come out about Lourdes more recently, actually, although I haven't seen it yet. But it's a piece of, I mean, it's a fiction, it's a feature length fiction film, but it just transported me to to another world, really. And I guess this is what I'm most interested in often when I'm making my work is this sense of being placed in another world and trying to make sense of it. So I saw this mm. film and what what was particularly kind of fascinating to me was that not only was it obviously imbued with this kind of Lord itself, imbued with this deep faith, this deep spirituality, this sense of anything could happen there because it's got such a history of, miraculous occurrences and happenings you know whether they've actually happened or not is another debate entirely but you know people go there partly because they they feel there may be a chance that their health may improve they would pray for people who are sick people in their family um they would um you know they're not necessarily expecting to kind of go and suddenly leap out of their wheelchair and run a marathon, of course. But what they are hoping for is, and which I, what I really saw was this sense of spiritual strength and spiritual renewal. And this was also kind of discussed in the film that I saw, this film called 
blurred. And also what was particularly striking about the film was that it really centred around this Catholic organisation, kind of lay organisation called the Order of Malta. And they're a very big, very powerful organisation, actually. But every year they go to Lourdes on, they have an international pilgrimage where members of the Order of Malta from all over all over the world gather for one week in Lourdes and they are there helping the very sick, the very ill, the infirm. But from a visual point of view, they wear these incredible outfits. So the women wear these long black kind of flowing cloaks and they look, they kind of look like nurses with these white headdresses. The men wear these almost like military style kind of boiler suits, but they look like they've stepped out of another era entirely. So what I actually did when I began to go to the Lourdes um, with a view to making a body of work about the experience there was I deliberately timed my trips with the Order of Malta so that I knew that I would, there was a chance and a possibility of me being able to photograph some of the members of the Order of Malta um, when I was there making the work because they had this incredibly striking presence and I really wanted to somehow communicate and express this sense of stepping into another world and a world where you didn't really know, you know, what was happening there necessarily historically. You couldn't place it in a particular decade or era, this sense of otherworldliness that I was really keen to try and communicate. Yeah, and this project Ex Voto, it's also inspired by the marks that are left behind as well. Yeah, um, well, there are, there are yes. Little it contains the series itself contains objects, and um, there's a cross rubbed into a rock as well, mm -hmm. etched into a rock. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah photos what, what, come what in. Was, yeah, yeah what, what is a vote? Tell us what a votive offering is. Yeah, well, it's it's an offering of um, of devotion, really. Um, it's often to fulfil a vow. I think is the actual Latin kind of translation. But that was quite interesting because the reason I called the project Ex Voto and the reason that came about was that I'd actually, when I kind of started my MA in the Anthropology of Pilgrimage at SOAS, I'd already been going to Ex, uh, sorry, to Lourdes and the images I'd been producing, as I mentioned before, just hadn't had this quality that I was hoping. They were kind of nice images. They felt like more editorial images though. But I was in a seminar, I remember I was in a, a small seminar and someone mentioned this term, ex voto. So a votive offering to fulfill a vow and offering of devotion. And I suddenly realized that I'd been seeing these all around Lourdes in my previous visits and they come in many forms. So you might, they could, they can sometimes be much more intricate and you may often see them at Catholic churches kind of in, well, all around the world, in Europe, in South America. Um, but I realised that I'd seen these very kind of simple offerings around Lourdes. And like you say, they could be anything from some cross crosses etched into a rock face. Quite often they were small little kind of prayer notes that were folded up very tightly and left under rocks or kind of hidden in crevices of rocks in the stone in Lourdes. Um, sometimes I, I once found a, a, some twigs that had been made into a the kind of shape of a cross or crucifix. Sometimes they were little passport photos that would be hidden under rocks. So I realised I'd seen these, these kind of gestures within the landscape in Lourdes, but I hadn't really known what they were, what they represented. You never really know who's leaving them behind. 
So when someone mentioned the term ex voto in my seminar, I was suddenly like, oh, that makes sense. Okay, that's what I've been seeing. And actually, at that point, I really needed... I was still building the project, so I realised that actually what I wanted for the project to work was not just the portraits of primarily the Order of Malta pilgrims, but also other pilgrims, not just portraits of the pilgrims connected to their landscape, but also the wider landscapes and the ex voto themselves. So these very these very simple gestures in lots of ways that through photography became these very detailed still lifes and kind of observations that I made when I went around Lourdes. So in a sense, again, it comes back to this feeling of kind of discovery. So in the end, I was um, I was probably like a slightly mad woman, like going around Lourdes thinking, oh, what, where can I find this little cross or this little photo? And really looking very, very carefully and in very kind of detailed ways at the landscape to try and see if these objects have been left behind. And it was only when you looked very closely that you began to kind of identify them. And that was when I knew, you know, when I, once I knew that they were the ex photos themselves, that felt like a fitting name for the project. So the project and the book then became ex photo. And aside from these objects as well, there are um, many portraits in the series as well. Um, and I think one of these individuals is, is, well, she's called Vera. Is that right? Yeah. So what happened with ex photo yeah. was I had spent many years at this point going to Lourdes. I mean, it was incredible. I have to make it clear that it was incredibly frustrating for kind of three or four years because I was spending a lot of money going there. I was paying a kind of friend and assistant who speaks many languages called Cecile to come with me. Um, obviously the film and processing was very expensive. I had to pay for, I mean, the boring things, travel and accommodation. And at that point, the project wasn't really going anywhere. So I only really had this kind of breakthrough moment with the project when um, I actually decided to go back and slow everything down. And the reason I, the way I managed to do that was through, shooting on large format and in black and white so there were two major kind of shifts in the way I worked which was I moved to a large format camera and I shot in black and white and then I was like why on earth have I not you know what was I shooting in color all along it makes so much sense to me that for this kind of almost mystical magical mysterious feel that the images are in black and white but anyway sometimes I feel you have to go through things very much not working in order to get a sense of how they might work but yeah, I had photographed at this point um, many pilgrims in, in Lourdes, many of them who were members of the Order of Malta. And the project then shifted to a site called Grabarka in Poland, which is on the eastern border of Poland, and also a very small village called Baliverni in, in Ireland. Um, but it was in it was in Grabarka where I met Vera, who you who you mentioned, who you allude to. And Obviously, it's, it's very hard. Some people say, well, how do you, you know, what makes you want to decide to make a portrait of someone? And I think um, Simon also mentioned this in, in the podcast, that it's very difficult to identify exactly what it is. For me, it's certainly to do with a sense of, one, you know, some kind of intrigue of wanting to be closer to this person, wanting to not get to know them because you don't necessarily get to know them through a portrait, but sensing something about them that is interesting so it could be the way they walk it could be you know it could be their eyes it could be the clothes they wear um and when we were in and sometimes you get a very strong sense like I really really want to photograph that person other times you know you don't always know how it's going to work out so there may be some people I photograph 
and I make a portrait of them and I kind of think, oh, not really sure if that was a very strong portrait. And then when I get the contact sheet back, it surprises me. So, you know, that's another thing about film that it allows for these wonderful surprises. But I remember when I was in Ingrabarka and I had actually already gone there once with Cecile. So this is the Polish pilgrimage site. And this is an Orthodox Christian site as well. So things like the iconography, um, the kind of rituals and everything are can be slightly different. Um, but I'd been there once before and it had been a very, very quiet. It was a kind of off, off pilgrim season, if you like. But it was also just a very tranquil place, a very calm place, which I also loved. And that was part of the reason I think that I so loved making this work that it did transport me to somewhere that was entirely different from my existence in London. Um, but there were very, very few people around. So you'd get the odd kind of pilgrim turning up with a lunchbox in their cagoule and waterproofs. And you'd be like, mm, no, that's not quite the portrait I was, you know, I was thinking of. But then when we went back to Grabarka, we'd actually been told, well, if you want to come back, you really need to, if you want people, you have to come on feast day, which is the annual very important day in the orthodox christian calendar so we went back for another trip and turned up and it was actually like too much there were thousands of people it was very overwhelming so it was very hard to find any space to kind of photograph them in but i was kind of wandering through the pilgrimage site and in grabarka it's basically it's a church on top of a on a hilltop outside a small small village in in eastern poland um and what was particularly striking about grabarka is that over the years and this became a site you know last century actually but and it originally began because it was seen as a, a site where people could be cured of cholera um but what's happened over many many decades is that people have gone and either in groups or individually they've left wooden crosses and they've they've kind of pierced them into the soil so it looks actually quite occult like in a way it's very very striking because it's a forest on top of a hilltop with just thousands and thousands of wooden crosses in the landscape of all different sizes and often with actual ex photos kind of hanging off them. So rosaries and photographs, people leave their crutches there. So it's an incredibly, it's, it's slightly eerie in one way, but it's an incredibly kind of compelling place as well. Anyway, very long answer to your question is that I was wandering through Grabarka on this very busy day and I just saw this Orthodox nun um, and she had a donation box around her neck because she was, um, collecting donations for her convent and she just had this immediate very very kind of strong effect on me I thought she just looked incredible she had very piercing eyes but also a very kind of she had a serenity but also a kind of soulfulness to her and also a sadness in some ways so she was very captivating as a character and you know sometimes I can be a little bit timid about asking people if I can take their photograph because you know, I feel it's an enormous privilege, but also there's that sense of what if they say no? Well, obviously, if they say no, it doesn't really matter. But sometimes if you're feeling a little, you know, sensitive that day, it can it can throw your whole day off and you can feel quite disheartened. So there's always that slight sense of what's going to happen and how are they going to react and how are they going to respond? Anyway, I kind of said to Cecile, who I was with, oh, I'll go and ask her. She looks amazing. She looks amazing. So I kind of hung her out in the background. And of course, we didn't know as well if she spoke English. Um, but anyway, Cecile said, look, we're doing this project and I try and explain whether I approach someone or Cecile approaches someone, you know, what purpose of the project is the way we work. It's not just a quick snap, but, you know, I try and be as kind of open as I can about what I'm trying to do through this image making process and through this project. 
anyway, so we kind of explained to the, it turns out she's called Vera, what we were trying to do. And um, would we, would she be open to us taking her portrait? And she did this very kind of dramatic, like, gesture with her cloak and kind of went, of course, ladies, follow me. And so then we were like, oh, my God, she said yes. And then you have this kind of panic because then you feel the pressure because she looked so amazing that you feel pressure that you've got to kind of come up with a good portrait. But I remember there was this kind of opening opening in, in the woods and in the forest and the light was very nice. It was kind of quite soft and it fell quite softly onto her face and it felt like it was away from all the chaos of the kind of annual feast day, which was quite like it was mayhem, really. It was very, very busy, but I found this quiet space. And um, yeah, and I remember when I took, I remember it very clearly because I remember taking her photograph and with that large format camera, you know, you have to be patient. The subject has to be patient. They have to be very still. Um, you have to be very precise. I do a light meter reading, you know, have a cloak over my head. Um, so it's all in some ways it's kind of quite theatrical, which actually turns out quite kind of suited Vera. Um, also, she told us her name was Vera and that's um, Russian for faith as well, which seemed very fitting. Anyway, I remember when I was taking her photograph and I kind of put my loop onto the, the ground glass on the back of the camera and I was really taken aback. I was like, whoa, this woman, it's like she's looking into my soul. And it sounds incredibly dramatic to say that now, but that is honestly how it felt. And I'd never really felt that way photographing someone before so yeah it had a really kind of profound effect on me that meeting and actually we kind of stayed in touch and when I got some money it's a bit of a long story but for money via Sony small amount of money grant money um she actually said to us on a kind of well I wasn't sure if it was a throwaway comment but at the time but she said oh ladies you must come and visit me at my convent in Belarus because she'd come over the border from Belarus and we were like oh yeah huh, maybe one day you know Kind of brushing it off and then when we did actually or I did actually get some money from Sony I was like well why don't we go there and what an extraordinary opportunity to be given to to visit a monastic sister or nun in her convent in Belarus so we did go there and what started as a short film that was originally going to be shown and was shown at the Rencontre Al Festival as part of the Discovery Award then became what is now, and this is a very long answer to your question, now a full-length documentary feature film, which is now in the kind of um, final stages of post-production. So it's one of those, it was a very, I don't know, serendipitous account, encounter, unexpected encounter that could have just been left as a one-off encounter, really, but became so much more. And now six years later uh the film is is finally being being realized I guess but it certainly wasn't something I never really expected to make a film um and I I don't know if I ever will again I think this feels like quite a unique moment in my practice mm-hmm. I suppose and it just came through spotting someone and thinking there's something about them and I want to know more and actually as it turns out when we first, well, when I first took the portrait of her, Cecilia and I were both like, she's got stuff going on. Like, she's got stories to tell. There's something there. There's something there in her history and her past. And um, it turned out that our instincts were correct. And she's had this completely extraordinary life, which you find out about in the film. This is Cecilia Embleton, her name. Yes, her friend, correct. Translator. Cecile, yeah. That's right. 
And, she, she's, and she's your yeah. she's your co-director now as well. She is. So she's actually a yeah, yeah. very talented filmmaker in her own right. She's a bit younger than me. So when I first met her, she was kind of assisting me, but she's also very um, talented in terms of languages. She speaks many languages. So she was my kind of friend, confidant, assistant when we went to Lourdes many years ago. And I was with her when I met Vera. Um, and we are co-directing the film together, correct? Yeah. So that's how it's all kind of worked out. And the film is also very much, I mean, you know, I'm not going to suddenly be asked to, I don't know, direct the next Marvel movie or something. Like, you know, I, I, there's still a lot I have to learn about filmmaking, but also I don't think I would ever have done this film if I hadn't been able to do it in the way that I take my photographs, essentially. So mm -hmm. there is a real stillness to the film and there's a real kind of discipline there, which in a way obviously reflects the nature of being a monastic and, and being a sister and the very rigid, disciplined way of life that that occurs when you choose to live that way in, in a very kind of enclosed, almost quite secretive community. Um, and the film is in black and white as well. So in terms mm -hmm. of stylistically and aesthetically, it very much follows what I've already produced with Ex Voto. So mm -hmm. it's not like I'm suddenly doing this big colour blockbuster like it yeah, in terms of lots of the shots actually almost look like stills. You know, there's a real, there's a quietness to them and there's a stillness to them. Um, so there is a, an obvious crossover there and it does really very much feel like an, an extension, an extension of the original work. Um, but you kind of enter this arcane world of the monastery. So what was, what started as an interest in the films of, is it Jessica Hausner? Yes, yeah. Um, then then became Ex Photo. Uh-huh. And then that leads on to Vera. Sure, uh, yeah. So yeah. there's a there's a whole thread. There's a whole thread mm. um that goes back to your original investigations at Lord as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and absolutely. So we, yeah. so we arrive at this this hidden life of an Orthodox nun mm -hmm. on a mm -hmm. convent and her relationship to horses as well. There's a some mm. some kind of relationship to horses there as well. She's kind of a horse whisperer. She's pretty amazing. Um, I mean, I should and also that's, that's mention. Her, mm, sorry, that's her. Uh, that's her task, isn't? Yes, or, that's isn't correct. It, yeah. So when you um, when you join a monastery, and the film is actually maybe be called Mother Vera as opposed to Vera, but we're still figuring that out. Um, when you join, well, in this convent anyway, well, in most convents, you normally have what's called an obedience, which is your kind of job or your role within within the monastery or the convent. They generally call it a monastery, um, although it is just um, sisters. So it's just nuns in the monastery, but they also have a whole community of men who aren't, but they are men who've been kind of excluded from mainstream society in Belarus, really. So these are men really on the edges of society. Many of them are ex-drug addicts. Many of them have been in prison. Uh, many of them have been involved in very serious crimes and actually they act as a kind of mirror to Vera's own life before she joined the convent but her obedience so so you're given this role and it could be really boring like peeling peeling the vegetables for dinner in the convent or cleaning the wax off all the candles in the churches but actually Vera's um was looking after the horses on the convent farm and she'd always ridden as a young child so horses Oh, they kind of represent freedom to her in a way. And when she she used them as an escape, really, from the 
I wouldn't say it's necessarily drudgery, but the monotony of of convent life because the nuns are actually unbelievably busy. Like they're they're all they're they're completely they work incredibly hard. They're always really stressed out, and um, whereas other sisters in the convent had these slightly duller jobs, hers was to look after the horses, and she found a lot of solace and and comfort with the horses. So a lot of her time when she wasn't in the convent is spent riding the horses but also looking after them playing with them but she's also has this kind of slightly kind of also almost sensual physical relationship with them um so it's quite a complex relationship she has with the horses but they are yeah they've become a kind of very important motif in the film so she is she, is she still considered a pilgrim or well hmm um because that, that's that's yeah, I want to, interesting before question. I ask you about um, your project Glee Solani, mm-hmm. uh, I'd like to open up this theme of pilgrimage as well. Um, and well, she what was that, a pilgrim. What that means to you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, she what, what was it means a pilgrim. In the context of your project and, mm. and how you think photography can can show that. if Because Ex Voto is about these very situated photographs. Um, is it Ireland, France, Poland, and, and Belarus, as you say? So, how how do you think your images capture that sense of pilgrimage? How do you think they capture that? Uh, what what well the word reaches us in English today from the the Latin word peregrinus, which means mm-hmm. someone on a journey. Yeah, and in a sense, we're all on a journey of our own. And so, how do you think that that sense of that um, sense of movement of the transitory nature of existence is is portrayed in your account of of Vera? Well, I mean, she was certainly a pilgrim when she was at Grabarka, but also, you know, really she was there to try and get money for her convent. So I'm I'm not sure she would necessarily be considered a, a true pilgrim when I met her. Um, although her journey, if you want to put it that way, has been absolutely extraordinary and she's still kind of searching in many ways. But in terms of the notion of, of what it means to go on a pilgrimage or to be a pilgrim, um, I mean, obviously, every experience is is very unique. And through my series, Ex Voto, I've only really kind of focused on an aspect of it. And actually, I focused on what I wanted to communicate through these images and what I wanted to capture was very much the relationship between the person and, and the landscape around them. So this kind of sacred space that they inhabited when they were on the pilgrimage. So there are... For Exvoto, for instance, the portraits are quite formal in many ways. They're quite austere in a sense, but they're always placed within the landscape of pilgrimage. Now, of course, pilgrimage has also changed hugely over the years. So um, when Lourdes first became a big site of pilgrimage, people would, you know, they would walk there or they would um, sometimes when I was at these um, pilgrimage sites, I would see people on their knees at the Chemin de Croix, for instance, the Way of the Cross. Or um, And in fact, they were going around in Grabarca, around the church on the hilltop on their knees as well. So there is this also this sense of, you know, putting your body through pain in order to, to gain kind of spiritual strength and be recognised by God. But I chose, as I said before, I chose actually in the end not to focus on the explicit bodily experience, but to try and focus on this sense of faith and spirituality. Now, of course, faith isn't kind of tangible. I mean, it is in terms of I saw it in Lourdes when I saw people 
praying and lighting candles and I saw them touching the grotto. But what I wanted to try and capture was this sense of this almost transcendence or this sense of there being a higher world. So I wasn't focused on the journeying aspect in a literal sense. I was trying more to encapsulate what it actually feels like to be in those spaces, to be thinking in those spaces, to be praying in those spaces. And although I wrote quite a lot about community, for instance, in my in my dissertation about Lourdes, actually the pilgrims I photographed, I think all of them actually that ended up in the book anyway, are all alone. So for me, it was more about this singular experience actually. And from my own experience, which was an atheist and to some degrees an outsider going into a new landscape, a landscape of faith, of of religion, of um, certain beliefs. So this entering this space that I wasn't familiar with, it became a very kind of individual experience for me and something that was quite transformative. And by transformative, I don't mean that I've suddenly, you know, become Catholic or anything. I certainly haven't. But in terms of this this journeying in journeying into yourself. I suppose, and not in a kind of hopefully a kind of mindfully, you know, there's so much mindful stuff around at the moment. And the, unfortunately, the term journey has been, you know, adopted by many Instagrammers now um, with hashtags and that <laughs> yeah. kind of stuff. Um, but, but you know, you have to, there is something, there is something there, like you learn about yourself when you're spending a lot of time on your own in places that have something deeply spiritual there whether you believe it or not like I don't believe in the miraculous side of Lourdes but but I believe that if you spend a lot of time in nature and in the landscape and therefore you're spending a lot of time thinking about whether it's about you or about other people or people around you um that that can lend itself to make some kind of significant changes in the way you live your life and your outlook on life so yeah, I don't know if that kind of answers your question, but this sense of journeying, I feel, is something that's more of an inner journey, I suppose, in many ways than a kind of outer yeah. one. And that's also what we rely on very kind of heavily in the film, because you move between Vera's kind of inner and outer world. So you move between her very, very troubled path and the guilt that she feels about, what well, about many things, about how she treated people in the past. Um, about the kind of lengths she went to before she joined the convent when she was mixed up in all sorts of kind of crime and drugs and stuff like that. Um, and you see her begin to transform in many ways. Um, and I think that's something that that can happen to all of us. I don't think you need to have organised religion to experience that. Mm-hmm. And you were speaking about the fact that you you see yourself as an outsider Mm -hmm. and you've clearly had to journey to these places um, with that in mind. Um, And when we journey to somewhere, when I reflect on my own practice as a, as a photographer, uh, there's, there's a, there is a parallel between the classical definition of a pilgrim and the journey of, of the photographer in the sense that, Rather than um, being committed to this idea of the eternal, the eternal, um, 
we nevertheless follow a path in the hope of finding answers to our secular concerns and questions. Um, so in, in maybe its basic essence, to assume the life of a pilgrim is to commit to a process of, of wandering without a prearranged destination as well, in the same manner that the photographer journeys through a world whose continuing possibility is always appearing anew with every glance and whose understanding is never final. So in a sense, even though you're not looking at, you're not following a path in a, you're not looking at a pilgrimage as a, as a process, but these landscapes, which resemble or represent pilgrimages, you know, the, mm. the situ, your, your situated photographs of the markings of the, of Vera in the landscape and all the other individuals that you photographed, they are, they're representative of the, of the pilgrimage, but they're not the pilgrimage itself. Yeah. In a sense. I mean, yeah. yeah, I get what you're saying. I mean, I think for me, I'm never, I'm perhaps looking for answers to certain questions, but I don't think you ever really find them <laughs> through photography or you, you rarely do. I don't anyway. Um, so this sense of, it comes back again to being open. So this sense of journeying, but not quite knowing where it's going to take you, wandering on paths, but not quite knowing where the end is. I mean, yes, for instance, with Exvoto, I identified pilgrimage sites that I wanted to visit, but I didn't know what they were going to be like when I got there. They didn't kind of present themselves to me as these amazing places of wonder where I could just take any old picture and it would kind of be a great, a great portrait. So for me, photography is like, each step is getting you kind of closer to finding out something about yourself and your practice, but it never really provides you with any answers. And I think if you want answers, it's probably not, the, you know, a, a great profession to go into because you're, you're probably not going to find them. Um, but in terms of being to a degree an outsider, I think that's when my anthropology allows me to kind of almost go a bit a bit deeper into things or attempt to. And certainly, I mean, depending on, you know, different pilgrimages, people go on pilgrimages to Glastonbury now. I mean, the term is very widely used, so it doesn't always reference a religious pilgrimage. But certainly the kind of traditional pilgrimage routes did require, you know, long commitment. Um, they were very arduous. They, um, you know, they required huge amount of time and effort and kind of psychological strength I suppose and I'm not saying as a photographer you you know I'm not really trying to draw parallels but there are certainly overlaps there with the kind of qualities that you sometimes need as a photographer depending on what kind of work you're making um but this sense of journeying and this sense of discovery is something that is very much at the kind of forefront of my thought process when I'm making my work. Mm -hmm. And with Glee Isolani, mm. you made, in a sense, a number of pilgrims for at least two years to record the cultural festivities on the Mediterranean, Mediterranean islands of Sicily and Sard Sardinia. Um, and in this project, you focus on the traditional costumes and masks worn, uh, worn during these carnival events. Um, and I read in the Sean O'Hagan article that many of the individuals in the series are of young men, uh, 
dressed, for example, in deer antlers, fur hides and cowbells. Yeah. And the, the cultural identity of these men is very much linked uh, to this act of embodying ancient pagan folklore mm-hmm. and symbols. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, what struck me as well, um, in relation to your previous work as well, in this, in this, in Glee Salani, there are also many Christian motifs and including, well, well including women veiled as uh, nuns, um, wearing what I think is known traditionally as a habit. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so when did, why did you first journey to, to this place? And yeah, take us, take us to this landscape, the landscape where Glee Solani is situated. So the project originally started as an attempt to document actually in the north of Italy, in Venice, a cemetery island there called San Michele, which is a very, very beautiful island situated in the Venetian lagoon. And that had always stayed with me, um, that island, from when I was in Venice many years ago working as a travel photographer. And I'd been sent to all the usual places in Venice, which of course is incredibly beautiful, but very much um, over-photographed. And what really, yeah, what really kind of stuck with me was this experience of taking the the Vaporetto over to to, uh, San Michele. And it was a very kind of misty day and very atmospheric and very evocative. So first of all, it was nothing to do with kind of costumes and masks, the project. I was thinking about exploring particularly the cemetery island and this sense of loss and abandon in the Venetian lagoon and the other islands as well. But then again, like sometimes my ideas take months, 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 years sometimes to kind of formulate. So then I attempted to do that on kind of a couple of trips and it wasn't working for various reasons. You know, the Venetians are very private. Everything's kind of boundaried there. There's not a lot of freedom in terms of photography. They're completely sick of photographers in Venice as well, unsurprisingly. So it wasn't an easy place to be making a body of work. I also felt that abandoned islands had been you know, photographed quite widely before. So it wasn't a hugely original concept. But I started looking at, again, kind of dates in the in the Christian calendar in terms of festivities that might happen um, that might be linked to, yeah, sometimes to, to often, yeah, they're kind of, they've got pagan influences, but they were linked often to um, saints or sometimes the changing of the season, Um so there were these events that happened annually that would involve locals dressing up in costumes and masks and very different. I'm not talking about the kind of um, carnival in Venice, which is very, very touristy. But once I started finding out about these, I looked at, yeah, kind of folklore and fairy tales and fables. And it took me then to the much kind of wilder, more rugged terrain, I guess, of the small villages in Sicily and Sardinia, which is when I began to find some of the the costumes that you mentioned where young, often young men from the local villages um, kind of really transform themselves and begin to embody often animals or they're, they're dressed as shepherds, but there's this very much this sense of kind of tension between, for instance, man and the land good and evil, the sacred and the profane. So these, yeah, these themes that I suppose I've attempted to tackle in some way through Ex Voto and through the film are kind of coming up again through these um, costumes and masks that are worn 
for these festivals and festivities and these costumes and rituals that are employed and that are very, very deeply entrenched in the cultures, particularly of these very rural rural villages in Sicily and Sardinia. So there's certainly, yeah, a kind of a kind of crossover there. But what actually happened was that on a kind of practical note for this project was that originally I was going to go, I kind of mapped out when these different festivals happened. So for instance, Easter is obviously a really busy time in the festival calendar. Um, so many of these costumes would only be worn once a year at Easter. Other days it was to represent a, a certain saint day that was very important to the local village. So that would only happen once a year. So I'd mapped out a kind of plan to go to these villages at different points in the year. But then, of course, because of COVID, that that wasn't able to happen because all the celebrations got cancelled. Um, so then I actually took a different approach, which I'd never really done before, because for, with Ex Voto, it was a sense of me waiting and waiting and waiting for kind of an interesting nun to come along or an enthralling person from the Order of Malta to kind of appear. Um, although that took a very long time to kind of figure out how that was working. But with this, I ended up actually working with this brilliant woman called Giovanna, who's like a documentary film producer and is a wonderful mix of kind of charm and um, persuasiveness, really very direct woman but working with her um at employing her kind of as a fixer assistant translator in the same way I work with Cecile and I drew up a list of the villages that I really wanted to visit and try and capture them in these costumes and we actually asked them if they would essentially dress up or adorn themselves in these costumes in masks especially for our photographs so it happened it wasn't a kind of it wasn't organic in the same way that it was for Ex Voto. It was very deliberate. We kind of built this itinerary. Um, but it also meant that I had a much greater um, sense of control over the images I was constructing because actually it turns out that I wouldn't have been able to take images like this during the festivals because they're completely mad. Like people are completely hammered, like rolling around the streets. There's bonfires. There's It's raucous. People are, yeah, I mean, it's completely out of control. So the idea of taking these very quiet, still portraits, although they have got more of a kind of performative element, certainly, it just wouldn't have been possible. So actually getting in touch with them and building this kind of itinerary and seeing if they would be prepared to wear these costumes for us off season, if you like, um, work very well and actually in a weird kind of way the pandemic worked in our favour or my favour for this project because they were really excited about the idea of wearing these costumes again because it's a big deal it's a massive deal in the villages and they're always kept in these kind of almost vaults they're treated like these great treasures within the community and they hadn't been able to wear them for two plus you know over two years so the idea of a photographer coming over from the UK to photograph them in these costumes and to photograph them with great kind of pride and reverence as well, which is, I think, something that Sabrina, who wrote the essay in the book, refers to. They were really up for it and they were they were curious as to, what, you know, why, why was I going to this tiny village? But also they were really um, kind of flattered in a sense that people are still interested in these traditions because they're very localised, a lot of these traditions. So they don't always... Some, I would say, are better known than others. So in some parts of mainland Italy, people may be familiar with some of them, but then others, they're really not 
they're much more kind of obscure and you would only know about them if you lived around the locality of those villages. So um, so it became, again, a bit of a kind of road trip around around Sicily and Sardinia, really. And many of the costumes, it's quite hard to describe them. But like you say, there is definitely, I mean, they're not actually dressed as nuns, the women, but they're in these kind of veils that represent um, the kind of union between, at times, between good and evil, but the faces are covered Um and then you have the men with these, like you say, these incredible deer antlers or some of the young men who wear heavy sheepskins with just masses of cattle bells attached to their backs that kind of clatter and clang as they as they roam around the villages. So they're these really quite kind of theatrical photographs in some way. So you lose, in a sense, the austerity that you had in ex voto, but there is also a kind of energy there Um and obviously, again, it was like really amazing for me to make this work. And I felt very privileged, again, to be kind of let into their into their lives, really. Um, but it wasn't a project that I initially sought out. It was a project that was originally going to be about something else and then kind of morphed in morphed into this. But certainly, like you say, there are many connections and crossovers. Um, but I like to think of the this book as being. I don't know, I feel like it's almost like you're encountering people from your own imagination and some of them are like these crazy characters that might be from from kind of wild dreams and then others are these more ominous characters who might be like they're from nightmares. But I almost sense this, I almost felt this sense of having met some of them before and I think a lot of that also comes from reading a lot of kind of kids' storybooks when I was little and fairy tales and fables and just allowing your imagination to kind of take hold of itself and certainly like Il Diavolo who were the devils who I photographed on some rocks I mean they were straight out of um, where the wild things are <laughs> the Morris Sendak yeah, yeah. like kid story so there were you know I was kind of reminded of things from my past when I was making these photographs um, but in terms of the logistics of making them it was very different from Exvoto because it was essentially all kind of set up in advance um, but also very, very difficult. Some of them were very, very difficult from a technical point of view with the Sicilian sun beating down, kind of balancing on the edge of a rock with my tripod and cloak, you know, trying to direct groups as well. So some of them are groups of yeah, two, three. I know three. the feeling. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> I mean, I don't, you don't really always know that when you see the final output, of course, but there was a lot of what the hell am I doing questions I was asking myself when I was making oh, that work <laughs> I asked myself I asked myself that all the time and yeah also also who am I to to tell this story as well yeah I mean it's something that concerns me and troubles me I mean with this and I have to say what has been a real kind of thrill actually is that when I've shared the work whether it's with the pilgrims whether it's with people in these tiny villages they have generally, and particularly actually with Lee Solani, the latest project, where, where I'm just questioning the whole time, you know, what gives me the right to photograph these customs and these rituals that are so specific to these cultures and where these are cultures who don't even consider themselves Italian. You know, they've got their own identity. They've got their own history. They've got their own language. Um, what gives me the right to document that and what gives me the right to feel that I can document it in a kind of authentic and respectful way? But actually... I have, I, and I'm particularly worried about showing the work to people from those islands as well. But actually, first of all, what's 
kind of surprised me in a way is that unless you're actually from those villages, lots of Sicilians and Sardinians aren't, they're kind of aware that these, um, of course, they're aware that these festivals and and customs exist, but they've never actually been to those tiny villages or experienced themselves. So in a sense, it's opening up their own world (laughs) to them in a sense, but it's showing them an aspect of their own world that they weren't so familiar with. Um, And actually, most people, I've had lots of people from the islands get in touch with me saying, you know, thank you for documenting our culture so with so much kind of respect and with so much sensitivity um, and and keeping it alive to an extent because obviously what's the big concern for many of these locals and villagers is that these traditions may die out fairly soon. And although... They are so proud. They are so proud, these villagers. And they say tradition is in our blood, like it's part of who we are. We can't we can't get away from it. There is, of course, the concern that young people, particularly the young men, are leaving these villages because they want to build lives in cities or outside of the islands. Um, And I think from well, from the kind of wonderful feedback that I've got, and I don't know if everyone feels this way, but the people who have got in touch, it's been very reassuring that they feel that in some small way, my work might be helping to kind of keep the traditions alive, I guess. Um, But certainly this idea of diving into an unknown world was something I was very concerned about, as I mentioned with Ex Voto, where I was a kind of self-proclaimed atheist going into a world of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And actually what was quite interesting was sometimes the pilgrims would say to me, oh, are you you know, are you Catholic? Are you here as a pilgrim as well? But I would always be very honest with them. And I would say, no, I'm not. Or I'd say, I'm not quite sure if I'm atheist or agnostic. I don't share your faith, but I am very interested in what brings you here. And I am interested in what you gain from being here. And I am learning and I'm educating myself about it. And that was also a very genuine answer. I wasn't going to go into the fact I was doing an MA or whatever. But, you know, I, I felt like particularly when I did my MA, that kind of validated me in terms of my project. And it gave me more integrity, even if no one else really cared if I was doing an MA in anthropology of pilgrimage. But for me, it, it yeah, it it gave me more kind of confidence that this is work that I can make and that I can do in a very respectful and and sensitive way I mean also you know I am choosing mostly to go to Europe like I wouldn't necessarily especially with the history of particular types of you know photography within anthropology which has been really problematic over the years like there are certain places outside of Europe I probably wouldn't feel it would be right for me to document unless I'd literally mm-hmm. kind of been living there for 40 years I spoke the language I'd you know I'd, I'd really have to be able to justify that so um I am documenting places where there is some some familiarity on on some levels but I also it comes back to me about the kind of human condition as well and how you are representing these people you're, you're they're not just the other I mean it would be very easy with the latest project Lisolani there is a sense of otherness there because a lot of the costumes and masks are unfamiliar and strange mm-hmm. and and weird and eerie in some ways but I never want the people I'm photographed to feel objectified and I also think when they 
partly that camera really helps with that because you know they see the enormous effort I'm going to the physical effort the kind of psychological effort the um, commitment of time when I'm using that camera and I think that also helps with building the relationship with those you're photographing because you know they can see you're taking it very kind of seriously this isn't just a few snaps on an iPhone yeah we've we've we we've returned to this concept of openness a few times now during our conversation and there's a word in the Scots language, um, the word gang, and it means to walk or to journey. And mm. it also means to die. And so this twofold meaning between the idea of movement and mortality is, I find that quite interesting. Since before we can move forward, we must be willing to let go of, of our point of origin in a way. And so if, the, if documentary photography is in essence an act of listening uh, to what the world has to tell us in the same way that Tim Ingold believes that anthropology should be, then we must, when we enter these, these landscapes, when you enter Sardinia and Sicily and when I enter Lapland, for example, we must be uh, in a way ready to lose or put at risk the prejudgments, opinions, assumptions and expectations and the expectations our experience of the world has so far sedimented mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. for itself. Um, and in essence, we must be ready to let the, to let our understanding of the, of our place in the world be reborn. You know, mm -hmm. no, we're kind I, of casting, yeah. we're kind of casting ourselves off from, from the place where we last arrived in a sense. And mm -hmm. it's you, you were, you were, you spoke about going into these convents and monasteries as an atheist, but you obviously had to, that involved a, a massive amount of openness. And, and, um, it's like what I said to Simon Murphy as well. Um, we spoke about the gift of vision of, 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 of receiving, of receiving, uh, the phenomenon of the world, um, and about being open to that and watching the world appear in front of your eyes and being open to those being open to the way that the world reveals itself. And I can imagine back in the day when, when, when we think of, uh, when people, when peasants from medieval England used to go to Jerusalem, that, that must've been so exciting for them, you know, to go thousands huge, of miles huge adventure. and, yeah. and they were literally seeing the world reveal mm -hmm. itself, mm -hmm. um, as they walked um, and so again, that's, that's a big part of my process as I'm sure it's a big part of your process, this, this walking as well. Walking and, and looking and thinking. Yeah. But I think also, like you say, like the example you just gave, it's easy to lose a sense of wonder about the world now because we're so used to being able to jump on a plane and we can be over the other side of the world in five hours or, you know, the same day. Um, and that sense of openness and wonder can be quite easily lost, I think, in, in modern day through technology, through travel. Um, but that's what interests me and that's what kind of drives my work. And also, yes, like you said, it's obviously the act of listening, but I'm also very aware that there is an act of looking as well. And there is the gaze and the other, or, you know, however you want to put it like there, and there are issues there that I think need to always be considered. But for me, making work and 
working as a photographer is about it's not just about like you say it's looking but it is also listening and listening not always in a literal sense but kind of listening to to what's in front of us or listening to the landscape and reacting to that um and that's why you know I always try to be very open even with my ideas so I may you know I've always got lots of sketchbooks and research and notes and I'll buy lots I'll try and do lots of um kind of reading around my subject particularly if I'm trying to tackle a subject that I'm not familiar with of course it's really important to me that side of things um but I never really know what's quite going to happen until I get there but for me it's important to always hang on to that sense of wonder about being surprised by what we see um and thrilled by that at times as well you know the world is a pretty (laughs) incredible place and we're never gonna know everything but if we can learn a little more about the world through creative practice and through our own practice then we also in the process end up learning a little more about ourselves which is always helpful Mm -hmm. this attitude of being open can help us dissolve those cultural barriers as well Mm -hmm. so i've got one final question for you Okay. Um, we've gone on for quite some time, so I, I think we should <laughs> wrap up. Um, you've just you've just published this book. I believe you published it only in February, Glee Solani. Actually, it and was in November. It was, yeah, at the end of last year. It? Yeah, Lee Solani, right. yes. On, on Google, it says February oh. 2023. Oh, right. so. oh, well, it's close <laughs> enough, yeah. Um, and you're getting ready to release this film, yes. uh, Vera, or yeah. Vera. Or Mother Vera, depending on how what we call it, yeah. And so that's happening within the next uh, month or so, I believe. So, yeah, what what does the path well, look like? Well, I think I think realistically, the film. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. God, the film world is difficult. <laughs> you know, I thought working in photography was hard, but um, the film industry is even more challenging in many ways. And there's even, well, it seems less money around or um, funding. So, the, I mean, obviously, we're part of that is dependent on getting finishing funds, if you like. But we're going to be applying. Um, to film festivals later this year but that's been an absolute labor of love that project Um, but the plan is to yeah well we'd love to get a cinematic release and the way to do it is you have to kind of strategize around festivals so you kind of figure out the ones you most want the film to be in and you start there and then you end up working your way down to the perhaps less uh, kind of uh, prolific ones Um, so the film has been a huge part of my life really for, for the number of years so that's a very much a priority at the moment, trying to get that finished and get it out into the world and hopefully sharing, yeah, Vera's, Vera's story with with people. And then at the moment, I'm at the very early stages of thinking about a new project, um, which I think is likely to take me to Napoli because I seem to not be able to resist Italy at the moment, but um, the South. And actually that has also come through me taking photographs for the Time Out Guide to Naples years and years ago and being very drawn in by the city. Um, It's magic, it's mysticism, it's tradition, it's traditions. Again, these themes that are kind of very much at the forefront of my thinking. So I'm doing a lot of reading around that at the moment. So we'll see what happens there. I'm planning a trip at the end of May 2023, but my projects take a very long time. So it could be, yeah, a while until... Um, years probably until anything actually comes of that 
Um, but yeah, so they're the kind of two main things. And as you said, I obviously Ex Voto was a book and Lisa Rani was a book. And then in between those projects, I also did a project actually in my own neighbourhood in London called Lost Summer, where I photographed local teenagers whose problems had been cancelled due to the pandemic. So that was much more of a kind of localised project, but that also very much spoke, I hope, of, of the human condition of our flaws, our foibles, but also our strength and our resilience. And it was very much about the kind of loss of longing of these young teenagers caught up in something that was happening across the world, really. So that did bring me, that was all shot in kind of N5 and N7. So really on my doorstep, because of course we couldn't travel at that time. Um, but I think there are certain themes within my work that I'm certainly going to continue to pursue um, and that will probably always stay with me. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I just want to add one more question mm -hmm. and that was just as I think about how you don't th the power of photography to to answer questions mm -hmm. is there a question in your life that you're trying to solve oh, with photography oh wow um just a, just a, a question that might sum up your practice you know who are we really yeah I think yeah. I mean that's quite simple but it all comes like back to what makes us who we are what makes us human and this notion of shared experience as well so I think that's what I'm always trying to delve into in certain ways all right I think that's a great point to end on um <laughs> thank you very much for your time um oh, it's been a very okay. interesting conversation and thank you I'm um, looking forward to to the film um and uh, yeah the pictures are beautiful and the book was the the book was great. So thank you very oh, much for sending me that. Pleasure, Peter. Um, thank you. It was a great reference point for our conversation. So good, thanks good. again. Oh, I'm glad. Okay, thanks so much for having me then. All right, take care. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about the photographs of Alice Tomlinson, you can view her website at alicetomlinson.co.uk. If you enjoyed our conversation, please consider clicking the follow button to stay notified of future episodes. Until next time, thank you for listening.